Well, the most famous song in the Bible, the 23rd Psalm, begins with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That, that's a great, rich, classic image and depiction of our relationship with God. He is our shepherd. He is our guide. He is our leader. He is our authority. His direction in our lives is our obligation. He is exercising leadership. He's a good leader. He has a path for us that's best. He is our our guide, our king, our shepherd. Um, The song goes on in the next two verses in Psalm 23 to explain the paths of righteousness that he's taking us down. And it's described with some welcome words right out of the gate, like green pastures and still waters. And all that's great, and and, and we want that, we love that, we pray for that, and uh, and that just seems like a perfect pastoral picture of the good shepherd sheep following into green pastures and still waters. But you know the song. And by the fourth verse, we have um, a different image of the path of righteousness. It's depicted with the uh, unsettling words of valley, darkness, and even the uh, scary word death. The reality of the Christian life and being someone who is following the Good Shepherd uh, certainly doesn't mean and never has been promised in Scripture to somehow exempt us from the valley of the shadow of death and all the things that go with that imagery. And perhaps you're here today and you're saying, um, yeah, I, I know a little bit about that in terms of my life right now. Claim to be a Christian, claim that he's a good shepherd, want to follow God, but my life, I'm in the middle of some kind of uh, a valley, some kind of darkness, some kind of uh, deprivation, some kind of situation that I don't prefer. It's less than what I uh, you know, would prefer. It's, it's, it's actually so substandard, it, it is painful, it's loss, it's protracted trouble, uh, it's a diagnosis that has just upset my whole life. It is uh, a loss of a job. It's family problems. It's marital issues. It's a wayward kid. Uh, it's it's something about my my home, my life, the security of things. And all of a sudden, now I find myself as a as a Christian walking through something I certainly would qualify as a as a valley. And um, if you were here this morning, you saw the ad that is on the bulletin cover this morning for the series. It's it's. Um, not going to be a surprise to you that the series in, in, that we're in in Acts 21 is going to be about that dark valley that you might be in. And if you say, well, I'm right now in the middle of green pastures and still waters, well, that's fantastic, um, but I have news for you. You probably won't be there uh, for long. You'll be there for a while, but then eventually the Good Shepherd will lead you down a path of righteousness that is is darker and more painful and difficult. And even if you somehow seem to slalom your way through all of that, and, and you just seem to be one of these that just experiences a long season of green pastures and still waters, you've got people around you. You have people in your small group, in your sub-congregation, probably sitting in the row that you're in that are going through those dark valleys, and you need to be equipped and know how to respond to those in a dark valley. And the reason I bring all this up in our study of Acts 21 is because Paul is certainly going through all of those kinds of things. He's going through a dark valley, and he's leading, uh, God, God is leading him into a, a new season, a new segment of this that seems to be even darker. As it says in the fifth verse of Psalm 23, he's going to be surrounded by enemies. Well, of course, the good shepherd's going to provide a table before him but it's going to be in the presence of his enemies. It's going to uh, uh, include mounting uh, opposition. Maybe you're in the middle of some pending litigation in your life. Maybe there's some trouble that you're in at work or in your family. But all of us are going to experience what Paul has experienced to some degree, right? The kind is going to be the same. We will have struggles. And I want to minister to you as my primary audience for the next four weeks as we study the 21st chapter of Acts. I want to identify with Paul, who holds himself out here as a good example. Keep your eyes on me, the pattern you've seen in me. If you see it in other people, you ought to follow it. You ought to imitate it. And he is a great example for us of someone who's willing to follow the good shepherd even when the valley gets dark and painful. So that's the primary audience. And the secondary audience is, listen, you're going to need to minister to people for the rest of your Christian life who are going through the dark shadow. So let us look at the 21st chapter here. We'll break it into four parts. This week, let me deal with the first 16 verses, as shocking as that is. Get your jaw off the floor. Uh, 16 verses. 
we are going to cover. Now, part of the reason for this is that Luke has now joined the team uh, again. We've seen him come in and out of this, but uh, all the personal pronouns here are plural, and and Luke, the writer of Acts, is including himself. So we're getting details here in the next couple of chapters that are, you know, like he's passing by the island of Cyprus, and he's describing it. It's just like, okay, uh, we got a lot of detail here. Part of that is in God's providence is to show the historicity of this text. We're not reading the Book of Mormon here. This is a book that is based in history. It is based in, in real eyewitness testimony. And so we have a lot of detail here that thankfully we can work through as in, in, in a pastoral setting, in a church setting, we can work through and, and, and glean the pastoral lesson from this, and we can seek to apply it to our lives, or maybe in your case, Mr. Green, Pastor Stillwater, uh, you can apply it to those around you. Um, if we were in a New Testament survey class, this would be different. And I will read this for you uh, with, with commentary. I won't even promise that, I'll, that I won't give you comment. I'll give you some commentary here, which will try to answer some of the questions that are, that are surfaced just by reading the text. Uh, so let's do that, Verse the first 16 verses. And what we're seeing is Paul going into a, a, a dark valley here. It's, it's dark. can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. This is going to be a, a, a dark season. Um, but, but as I do that, the, the outline here emerges very simply. It's a simple set of concepts. And I guess even before we read it, we should start with some background, because you should put yourself in the sandals of the Apostle Paul and know, I'll give you two passages here before we get to Acts 21, where uh, this is part of the specially revealed pathway for him with detail that you and I aren't going to get on our lives. It's much like Peter. Remember Peter in John 21, resurrected Christ comes, and he says, you're going to be bound and you're going to be let off. You're going to go away that you don't want to go. And he's depicting the way in which Peter would die. Now, we, we don't get that kind of roadmap, but God gave Peter, who, by the way, is the, the, the quarterback of the first half of Acts, he gets that, that, that realization that he's going to be a martyr for Christ. Well, Paul, the second half of Acts, the quarterback of the second half, the apostle to the Gentiles, he also gets some of that uh, forecast of his future. Now, we don't know the details of ours, but we do know that the principle and the kind of struggles that we're going to have is going to move from green pastures and still waters into valleys and hopefully back out into green pastures and still waters. And for most of us, barring the return of Christ, we're going to end up being in the valley of the shadow of literal physical death. And so we, we just know this is going to be a reality for us. But for him, it was much more specific in terms of, of God's special revelation of him saying, here's what's going to happen. And it starts with Ananias in chapter 9. So go to chapter 9, Ananias, not the Ananias who dies in chapter 4, or 5 rather, Acts 5. We're talking about the Ananias who lives in Damascus when Paul, then known as Saul of Tarsus, was going up to persecute Christians. And you remember he got knocked off his horse and all of that, and now he's blinded and he's there. And God's Spirit tells, Jesus specifically tells Ananias, here's what I want you to know about the guy that you are afraid to go talk to. You're going to share the message of the gospel with him, but you just need to know what I've called out for him to do in his life. So with all of that, can you look at at chapter 9, verse 15? It says in verse 15, the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, I know you're afraid, but go and talk to this guy, Saul of Tarsus, soon to be the Apostle Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Right? All that sounds really good. It's like, great, I'm going to lead this guy to Christ. He's going to be great. He's going to be like a, a superstar in, in the church. He's going to go share the gospel with kings, which we're about to get into, by the way, in chapters 22 and following in our study of Acts. But look at verse 16. Here's where it turns into the valley of the shadow of death. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. (laughs) Okay, all of us have the general promise, right? If you follow me, they hated me, they're going to hate you. We have lots of promises in the Bible that we're going to go through the valleys of the shadow of all kinds of irritating, frustrating difficulties in the Christian life. But God was going to, much like he did with Peter, give him more specifics about some of the stuff he was going to suffer. By the time we get to the chapter just preceding the chapter of our study today, which is chapter 20, scurry on ahead to chapter 20, let's look at Paul's resolve to go to Jerusalem knowing it was going to be difficult. And here's what he says in the last study when we were in Miletus there and he was talking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Look at chapter 20. Let's start in verse 22 when he's resolved to go, but he knows what's coming at least in general. He says, and now behold, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I know this is where the good shepherd is leading me, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he knows that going to Jerusalem 
is going to include afflictions and imprisonment. That was no surprise to him because God, unlike for our lives, he's giving him some special revelation as to what's going to happen to him as he goes to, to Jerusalem. So that's where we're, we're going to... I got a map there at the bottom of your worksheet. Do you see that map? Or if you download the, the digital worksheet, it's there. We're going to go 700 miles on a journey today, really quickly in the first 16 verses uh, of this passage. And we're going to see him go from Miletus, where our whole series last time was based. As he was there in that port city, he's going to get on a ship now, and he's going to get his way to ultimately to Caesarea and into Jerusalem, as you see on the map. So let's read this with some commentary, knowing that he knows what's going to happen, at least in general terms, that this is going to be a really dark valley of his Christian ministry. And perhaps you can identify thinking, yeah, I feel like I'm in that as well with the stuff I got on my plate. Okay, first one. Are you ready? Acts 21.1. And when we, this is Luke and the team, had parted from them, that's the leaders of the church at Ephesus that were meeting him at Miletus, the port city, right? Uh, we set sail. And we came straight, a straight course to Kos, which uh, my map didn't have Kos, but it's right directly south of, of Miletus. So that's our first stop. And the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera, uh, or Patera, some announce it. That, that, that's where Pastor Nick was from, by the way. Remember that sermon from way a long time ago? Pastor Nick, Pastor St. Nicholas, they call him, of, of Christmas fame. Um, that's where he was born and did his ministry in Myra. But anyway, that's, that's a wasted sentence or two, but... I just thought somebody would go, I remember that sermon. No one remembered this sermon. So. <laughs> Verse 2. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, now look at your map, Phoenicia, that's the region there, north of Israel. We went aboard and set sail. So we found a ship. It's going the way we're, we're wanting to go, we're trying to get to Jerusalem. It says, and when we'd come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria, right? The more specific area there north of Israel. And we landed in Tyre, an even more specific area. That's a city. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, if you know the, the region, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to Maritime Caesarea, right? Caesarea Maritime, we call it. And that is the port city that you would naturally go to to get Jerusalem. Well, they didn't go there because they're, they're on a cargo ship, and they're just trying to find a ride out there. And uh, so they end up way north. But it was a good ride to get to where they were across the Mediterranean. And it says uh, that it unloaded its cargo there, verse four, number four. But while we're there... He says, we sought out the disciples, and we stayed there for seven days. So he's a week up in Tyre, and he found Christians there, got them together, and notice what happened. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to make a big deal of this, even though you, know, you think I'm tap dancing. I'm not tap dancing, but this is not by the Spirit they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. This is through the Spirit, through the information they got from the Spirit, which the Spirit had already made clear to Paul. It's going to be hard. Afflictions and imprisonment await you there. Well, they're getting this. They're getting God giving this special revelation about Paul's future. And their conclusion was much like you'll see later in this passage. They go, we don't want you to go then. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, they stayed there a week, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and we said farewell to one another, and we went on board the ship, and they returned home. It sounds a lot like Miletus. Remember, they'd come all the way down from Ephesus, and now at the end, the last thing we studied when we were together in Acts is they're crying, and they're hugging, and they're saying goodbye, and it's all this parting, tearful goodbye. Well, this is just a week. He'd been there for three years earlier, ministering in Ephesus. They had a tight relationship. Well, here they feel the same way. This is an important person, the apostle to the Gentiles, an important player in Christianity, and we know he's going, and he's going to suffer there. And so they're walking him down to the ship. So he gets on the ship there on the Mediterranean, and it says in verse 7, when they'd finished the voyage uh, from Tyre, they arrived in Ptolemais, and they were greeted by the brothers there, and they stayed for one day. So they had a short stop there with Christians in that city. Well, we got to get down to Caesarea so we can get on the road to Jerusalem. This is on the next day, verse 8. We departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Sunday school grads, why would they call him Philip the Evangelist? Philip the Evangelist, by the way, uh, evangelist is just the word euangelion, which is the word good news or gospel. And really, this is like Philip the gospel guy. He shares the gospel. He's an evangelist. He shares the gospel. And if you think back in Acts, we got a guy named Philip that shared the gospel. And it's important to know that he's not the Philip of the 12 apostles. So that's why he has this, this statement here. He's the one we learned about early in the book of Acts. He's out sharing the gospel in, in chapter 7. And this is Philip the evangelist. And he's not only just Philip the evangelist of chapter 7, he was one of the seven 
Now, the seven, you might remember, in chapter six of Acts when we studied it, he was a, a ministry leader. Ministry, by the way, is, is the English translation of the word diakonos. We sometimes transliterate that word deacon. One of the first prototypical deacons in Acts 6, they were given the responsibility to serve tables and be exemplary leaders in the church of Jerusalem, and this is one of them. So Philip, not the apostle, the evangelist, the gospel guy, and the guy who was chosen as one of the seven to serve in the church of Jerusalem, well, we stayed with him. So now he's in Caesarea, a key port city. He's just now, from here, we don't sail anymore. We're going to go inland to, to Jerusalem. That's the whole goal of this trip. They entered the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, again, if we're teaching New Testament survey class, we're going to, go like, we're going to dig deep into that. But just to satisfy some curiosity, if that spins your mind around, like, what in the world is that all about? Remember what I've said throughout the study of Acts. As we've been studying Acts for a long time now, we often talk about the difference between teaching New Testament truths in the book of Acts than we, and comparing that to, contrasting that with teaching New Testament truths now. I get up and teach the Bible. Women are in women's Bible study. Get up and teach the Bible. They teach the Bible, particularly the New Testament truths from New Testament texts, right? And we call them teachers. Well, in the early church, we were teaching New Testament truths without a written New Testament text because it hadn't been written yet. And so those people were called prophets. And the prophets, or those who had the gift of prophecy, as we read about in many of the early letters of the New Testament, they were given the task of teaching people about Christ, about the fulfillment of how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ, his ministry, what he did, his death, the implications of his death, his resurrection, all that needed to be taught to the church. We needed New Testament truths taught to the church, but they didn't have a New Testament, so they were given this endowment of God to be teachers in the church. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute. The preachers in our church, you've already made a big point of that, even though you're the last guy in Southern California to believe this, is that pastors are supposed to be men and, and not women, because that's how God set this up in the church, which, by the way, he can make the rules for his church any way he wants. Our job is to figure out what he said and to do it. If he said only redheaded guys could be pastors, then I guess I, I, I give it, I, I'm defrocked today because my hair is not red, or if he said you got to have big earlobes or whatever, I guess I qualify for that. But whatever the requirement is, God is going to make his requirements, and we're going to follow them. Just because it's not cool anymore doesn't mean we abandon it. But we know that God is set up as the, as the ultimate top leadership of administrating, and the word is ruling even in the pastoral epistles, and teaching and preaching over the mixed congregation. That's a gender-specific role, right? It doesn't matter if we don't like it. That's what it says, and that's what we're going to do. He's the good shepherd. His course is best, so we do it. Well, what is this all about? It's no different than us saying we got a cadre of gals who are teaching in our women's Bible study. In our case, I think we have over 700 people signed up learning in our women's Bible study. We have women teaching in that because that is a role that the Bible points out clearly in Scripture is absolutely appropriate. And we say we have no problem saying we have Bible teachers that are gals. Well, in this case, we have, we have prophets in the sense that they are teaching New Testament truths to the early church and they are teaching without a New Testament, but we know because God doesn't contradict himself throughout the scripture, this was a ministry to the gals in the church at Caesarea. And if you think that's a leap, it's not. We can spend a whole sermon on that or, or a series if you'd like. We've, we've touched on it a little bit in the book of Acts, but that's just to satisfy some of your curiosity or to try to anticipate some of your objections, or if your head just spins around talking about you got seven unmarried daughters who prophesy, I don't understand that. Uh, you should remember that this is all coming in the flow of Acts chapter 2, verse 17, which was a quote of Joel chapter 2, that the church was going to have these, this new work done where the Spirit of God was going to be poured out on the people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Remember that line from Joel 2 quoted in Acts 2? Yes, we remember that, Pastor Mike. Well, in that passage, right, again, we're seeing the fulfillment. This is one of the inclusions, a line we have no we have no knowledge of what, was, what they were teaching, what, was, what were the women's Bible studies like. We don't know. But it is listed here as a reminder that God was fulfilling the promise, that he would endow his church with the necessary gifts to have the church functioning as it ought to. And in the early church, we had even in this case, four of the daughters of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, one of the deacons, if you will, of the church of Jerusalem, now residing in Caesarea, he had four daughters that were teachers of New Testament truths. Does that help a little bit? Verse 10. And while we were staying for many days, right? So we got Tyre for a week. We got Ptolemus for one day. Now he's in Caesarea for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And again, not the gist of the homiletical 
purpose of this text, but you might remember Agabus early on saying that there would be a prophecy by the Holy Spirit prophesying there would be a prophecy. In this case, it's not just teaching New Testament truths. He's telling us now about something coming in the future specifically, and the first prophecy was that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. Part of what Paul's got on the ship is a big treasure chest of money that he's collected from the churches in in modern-day Greece, in Achaia, Uh, and also in the Asian churches, the wealthy churches that were doing well, he was bringing relief to the famine-stricken church in Jerusalem, and all of that was because Agabus had said there's going to be a famine there. And so that's one of the prophecies. Only two times he comes up in the book of Acts or in the Bible. The second time is here. The prophet comes down from Judea. And remember, down doesn't mean he's going south. In this case, he's going northwest, and he's doing that because down is always down in terms of elevation from Jerusalem. So he's coming down, coming over to Caesarea, as we might say. And um, Agabus, here we go, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Now imagine this, much like the Old Testament prophets, we see this with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. They sometimes do things, and in this case, it's an it's a object lesson. He takes the belt off of, of, uh, of Paul, and you're going to pay attention when that starts happening in the middle of the church service. Takes the belt off of Paul, off of his, his robe here, right? and he binds his own feet and his hands with the belt. And, he, and you can see him sitting down, like got his, all of four of his limbs tied up now. He's tied himself up. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Well, we know who owns this belt because we just saw you take it off of Paul. And he's going to deliver, they are going to deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Oh, this sounds like Acts chapter 9. He's going to bring the name of Jesus, not just to the Jews, but the Gentiles, which he's been doing, and now to kings, which we're about to see him do in chapters 22 and following. But it's all going to start with him being arrested, being bound, handcuffed, tied up, and then he's going to be given over from the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem to the Gentile leaders. Verse 12, when we heard this, who's we? Luke. Philip, Philip's daughters, the teachers there in the church that were teaching the women's ministry, the people in the church, all the people that were there had the natural reaction, the reflexive reaction of saying, right, we urge you not to go up to Jerusalem. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul responded, verse 13, you want to highlight any passage in this text right here. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, because that's what I'm called to do. And if he's going to lead me into green pastures, that's great. If he's going to lead me into the valley of the shadow of death and literally die in Jerusalem, bring it on, because that's all I'm concerned about is following the good shepherd. And since he could not be persuaded, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Thanks, Luke and Philip and the rest. Good. Stop. Stop breaking his heart. And they said, now here's another one to underline, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done, right? And the will of the Lord, I guess, must be that Paul's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and handed over to the Gentiles. And after these days, we got up, got ready, right? So Luke is with him now and went up to Jerusalem. So they went east to Jerusalem, southeast. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. Just like in Miletus, These Ephesian leaders went all the way to the port, and they were hugging on him on the way. And then even in Tyre after a week, they're accompanying him down to the beach to the ship. Now they're saying, well, this is the road to Jerusalem. Some of them said, well, I'm going. I'm going with Paul. We know it's going to be bad for him. So some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So the first 16 verses are just getting him from Miletus, down the Aegean Sea, across the Mediterranean, under Cyprus, to northern, north of Israel, Tyre, all the way down to Caesarea, and now he's made his way to Jerusalem. What we want to do is look at what's going on here. One of the verses I wanted you to underline there is the fact that they finally conceded in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done, because what's going on in verses 1 through 3 and what happens in verses 14 through 16 is the intent to follow the Lord to Jerusalem, because that's God's will for Paul's life. And in verses 14 through 16, people going, okay, I guess we're going to do that. Let him do that. And off he goes. So the first three verses and the last three verses of this text, I want to take those together and just underscore for you what's going on here. And that is God's will for Paul is to go to Jerusalem, even though it's a dark and painful imprisonment and afflictions await, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Why? Because it is the will of God. If I said to you, does God have a plan for the apostle Paul? You said, well, absolutely. Why? Because in 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 Acts chapter 9, when he got him saved, he said, hey, Ananias, here's the plan for the Apostle Paul. 
If I said, did God have a plan for Jesus? You say, absolutely, it's Jesus. He had a plan for Jesus, a redemptive plan. It was God's will and God's purpose. Now, if I said all that, talking about the luminaries, you'd say, absolutely. Now, if I said, hey, hey, Christian, you're here in this room, and your problem is so different and so distant, it's 2,000 years later, it's remote, it's about your finances, it's about your health, it's about your ministry or whatever. If I said, does God have a plan for you? See, I, I think most of us go, well, I, I guess. We don't think about that quite enough. But I want to remind you that, in, that, of course, he does. If Jesus says he has a plan for every hair on your head, and he's numbered them all, or a bird doesn't fall from the tree, Jesus said, apart from your father, if God's sovereign interest and plan and will and purpose is accomplished in the lifespan of a bird, right? then I want to tell you, you're much more valuable than birds. God's plan certainly includes you, including the dark valley that you might be in the middle of right now. And you need to stop, and you need to step back, and you need to say, it's not just God's redemptive plan in Christ that's planned out. It's not just the Apostle Paul's life that is planned out. It's not just my pastor or the missionaries that I support. It's not just their lives that are planned out. My life, God has a plan and a purpose for me. And only the, the most egotistical among us think about that every day. Most of us, if you're a humble Christian, you, know, you, you wonder about that. Really? Not for me? I mean, it can't be a big plan. But we need to stop and say, yes, God's plan extends to you. Put it this way, number one, no, God has a plan for you. And I'm telling you, if you're a normal, humble Christian, you've been humble, God's humbling you, it's hard for us to compute that, but I need you to compute it. Because you affirm that God makes plans and carries them out. I just want to remind you right now, he's got a plan for you. You are the sheep of his pasture. He is leading you, and he's leading you through every segment of your life, and he has a plan. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're doing our daily Bible reading with us, which I hope you are, our DBR has brought us to Ephesians this week, Ephesians 3 this morning, which was great, Ephesians 2 yesterday, Ephesians 1 the day before. We were reading Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to start in this passage by reminding you that all of us would have no problems affirming in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has a plan and a purpose in what he did in Christ. Look at verse 9, for instance. His whole point here, Ephesians 1, 9, is this thing that Paul's preaching about, the plan of Christ. This is making known to us the mystery of his will. It was once at one time hidden, which is what chapter 3 was all about. Now it's revealed, what he's going to elaborate on in what we read today in our daily Bible reading, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, the rest of the book's going to talk about all of that. But look at those big words, right? It may not have been known until he made it known, but it was his will, it was his purpose, and he set it forth in Christ as a plan, and it was planned for the right time. Do you see those words? You have no problem saying true on your Bible theology test this morning. Absolutely. God had a plan. Jesus was born at the right time. You can even read Daniel chapter 9. This was all planned out in terms of the timing. It was planned out where he would be born, what he would do, how he would minister, how he'd fulfill all righteousness, how he would die in our place, how he would rise again. I believe all of that. God has a plan for Christ. He has a plan for the redemptive plan laid out in the Bible. Great. We can applaud all that. That's fantastic. Keep reading. Verse 11. Now, in Christ, in trying to unite all things in him, reconciling the world to himself, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In him, we, now he's speaking, if you want to be very technical about it, I suppose the first century Christians that he's writing to, we have obtained an inheritance, right? We've legally, forensically now been qualified to be in God's kingdom, and we're going to inherit that kingdom one day, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, here's a big word, A-L-L, all things according to the counsel of his will. So, now, all of a sudden, we've gone from this big redemptive plan to everybody now called to this inheritance and saying God has a plan for them. And we could say, well, it's just intersecting with the plan of God's redemptive plan in Christ. So, I mean, I can't be specific about all the details. And it's not this season of my cancer or this loss of my, my relationship with my child or this frustration I'm having in my relationships at work or the, or the financial downturn and my house for, being foreclosed. And I'm saying, yes, it does. It involves all of that. And if I said to you right now, if you were to textually prove to me that it is true about every part of every believer's life, that God has a purpose that he's working out, I hope you would raise your hand and go, I know where I can find that in the scripture. Because it's quoted often and it is true and we need to let it percolate in as I think about God's plan for my life. And that verse would be Romans 8.28 if you wanted a textual text to just put it all in one sentence. 
right? That for those who love God, is that you? I hope it is. If you are called into his inheritance, you are now his child. He works all things together for good, right? To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, he's going to go on in the surrounding verses to explain all that. But if you look beyond just the next door neighbor verses, you can look at the whole chapter of Romans 8 and see, guess what? It involves a lot of pain, a lot of trial, a lot of struggle, like sheep that are handed over to the slaughter. The Christian life is full of valleys and pain and difficulty and the darkness of loneliness and pain and and frustration and, and, and left turns and detours that we think this isn't planned. I never plan it, but guess what? God has planned it. We have to affirm the the God of of, of plans. And if, by the way, and let me just say this, please. If you've got people whispering in your ear that they figured this whole thing out, which is, you know, I know how this plan of God works, and all he does is sit there and run the tape forward, look at what I did, and then go back and kind of write it down in the plan book, right? That's some of the explanations are very common today. And they do this, figured out that old theological knot. Right? If you have anyone whispering that in your or you sit here today advocating that view, I just want to, I want to ask you a question. How in the world did the Apostle Paul struggle with this so much that in chapter 11 of Romans, he's standing back mind-blowing saying, I can't, the inscrutable ways of God, I don't get it. This is the guy writing the New Testament, and he's going mind-blown. How is it that God is a sovereign God planning out details, and yet I'm not a robot, I'm making decisions, I'm purposing things, and yet here it is that these two things are laid side by side. Here's Paul, mind blown. And here is the person writing the books that you might be reading. Figure that one out. Easy. Really? 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 And anyone that's going to lay the mystery down side by side, and we're going to say, well, this is what the Bible says, and we believe it you got to plan and purpose. I never plan the left turns. I never plan affliction. I never plan affliction for myself. You know, I really want the next five years to be really hard. Never. But God plans these things out because God, here's the word, scary word, dun, 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 sovereign. I already read the word predestination, so we're already ruined the sermon for some of you. But the reality is, this is how it works in Scripture. And for us to say, well, I really want a neat, tidy theology that doesn't have those kind of issues. Well, then you just better pick some other religion. Because the reality of, of New Testament theology is, and Old Testament theology, is that we have these truths in tension, and they both are resolved in God's mysterious, inscrutable plan, the mind of God, who can be his counselor, certainly not the guy who wrote that book telling you he can figure this out, or the preacher that's telling you it shouldn't be a conundrum for you. It's a problem. I get it. It's a mind twister. It's, it's going to give you a Charlie horse between your ears. That's just how this the- theological thing works. So get used to that and know this. You think I'm in this valley because I messed up or I did this thing or my genetics weren't right or because of this problem I made in a financial decision years ago and you think you got yourself here and all I'm telling you is you did in terms of your human decisions but here's the mystery of the amazing mystery of God's providence. God planned this out. You're not a robot. You're not a victim. This isn't fatalism. But God worked this out. He didn't just watch the tape to see what you would do. And he's not a good guesser. This isn't open theism, if you know those words. Right? This is a God who plans everything. He works it out according to the counsel of his will. A couple of passages, Proverbs 19, go there quickly. Proverbs chapter 19, everything in the sermon is going to be quickly, obviously, if you followed any of it so far. Mr. Mike is amped up today. Proverbs 19. Well, I missed you last week. That's why. I just had to get back and try, I know, get two sermons in in one. If I really cared for you, I would slow down, but um, Proverbs 19, 21. These are just important truths. We need to have them. Look at verse 21. Proverbs 19, 21. Are you there? Are you quick? Many are the plans in the mind of a man. And I'm assuming your plans like mine, unless you're a masochist, are not to make your life be in more valleys. You want green pastures. You want still waters. You want to read books that will help you in the Christian life. Just have more green, green pastures and still waters. But, I just hate those contrastive conjunctions. But, It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do you see those going side by side? God has a plan. I'm not a robot, and yet I make plans, and then God gets his purpose accomplished. This is a weird thing called the providence of God, and in this problem of my brain, I just know that the but sentence here, right, is the purpose of the Lord will stand. I've just got to deal with that. Now go back to chapter 16. Chapter 16, only a couple chapters away. Verse 9, the heart of a man plans his way. I plan my way. I plan my way all the time. But the Lord establishes his steps. Boop, 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 boop. I did not plan when I, was, when I was 18 years old to be a pastor. I didn't, I, didn't even plan, I didn't plan to do most of the things I ended up doing in my life. I 
made my plans, and then God established my steps. And I can say right now, I'm here in this auditorium preaching this sermon or on the radio, if you're listening on the radio, I'm preaching this. This is God's plan for my life. Even though I made a bunch of decisions to get here, I believe this. And when things go bad and things get hard or things go wrong, all of those things, from my perspective, the wrong of it, just because it's bad and difficult, like going to Jerusalem and being arrested and handed over to to the kings of the Gentiles, right? I've got to say this is God's plan even though he didn't reveal it to me like he did to Peter or to Paul, at least in general terms, about affliction and imprisonment, if I go to prison, I just know that's God's plan. I don't plan to go to prison, but if that happens, God's plan. Go back up to the beginning of this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. Those are my plans. But the answer of the tongue right, is from the Lord. I said yes to jobs. I, had, I said yes to ministry opportunities. I said yes to relationships. I said yes to things, and they came out of my mouth, and they directed the path of my life, and yet really I'm saying this is a God thing. That's from the Lord. Now, all the ways of a man are pure in his own sight. I think my plans are great, right, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. He knows that's not what's right. That's not, what, that's not where I want to take you. I'm going to take you over here. Now, this may seem contradictory to you. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Oh, my plan. Finally, my plans get established. All I got to do is commit them to the Lord. Well, commit them to the Lord. Commit them to the Lord. If you're working for a boss or a manager or something, they say, write that report. Now, commit that to me. Submit it to me. Right? You'd realize, well, I guess he's going to edit it, could change it. Okay? You want a New Testament equivalent to this. You can think in your mind of James chapter 4. And he says, don't go in your mind and go, I'm going to go to this city, that city. I'm going to travel here, make a profit, come back. You, you don't say that. you got to say whatever you're going to say, whatever your plan is. And then you need to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. You know that passage? That is what, exactly what we mean by committing. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew verb here is the verb to roll something. If I have something here on a carpet or whatever in my tent and I want to roll it over off of it, I'm rolling it off of my, my carpet onto the, the dirt or whatever, the stoop of my house, rolling it over. That's the word. I'm taking my plans, which by the way, I make plans, verse 1. I make plans, they're in my heart, verse 9, but I'm rolling over my plans to the Lord. I'm holding my plans loosely, and I'm knowing this, it's the will of the Lord. If, if it's not clear yet, right, it's the answer from the tongue is from the Lord. The, 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 the Lord establishes my steps. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, right, including us, right, and even the wicked for the day of trouble. These are mind-boggling truths that everyone wants to sweep under the carpet, but the reality is I am a person who knows that whatever situation I'm in, plan of God, Fatalist, not a fatalist, not saying that. Not culpable, and now I'm saying I'm culpable. Not a decision maker, yeah, you don't have a will, I have a will, I get all that. But I've got to recognize for this pastoral purpose this morning that whatever your situation, you got heart disease in because, well, you know, you're just so dumb eating all those potato chips as a kid, right? And there may be some connection, humanly speaking. But if you got heart disease, if you have arthritis, if you have a terminal, you know, brain tumor, right? This is God's plan. Oh, it's bad, though. God makes good plans. He's a good shepherd, but he leads us sometimes into the valley of the shadow of death. Matter of fact, every single one of us, barring the return of Christ, that's where this all ends up, death. And the reality is, I've got to say, okay, God has a plan for my life, including the current season I'm in right now. And it'd be good for us. I would do a lot for you this morning as your pastor if I could get you to say, that's it. Okay, yes, God's plan. I've got to recognize that I'm in the middle of God's plan doesn't mean there's not mid-course corrections, and you might say the best thing in the plan right now is to turn left. Great. But you're right where, you, right where God has planted. So I want to walk purposefully, not fretfully, into whatever painful segment of God's plan I've got here. The shadow of the valley of death. Fine. I'm going to walk through that following the good shepherd. Now, back to our text in the heart of our text, verses 4 through 12, and I made all my commentary when I read the text so that you wouldn't get stuck on all the details and just deal with what's happening. What's happening entire is in verse number 4, the end of that verse is they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, that was through the Spirit. Now, in what sense is that through this? Is this God's command for Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Well, that would, just, that would absolutely contradict everything else we're reading in the context of this book. It is God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem, and it's God's will for him to be arrested, and it's God's will for him to be handed over to the Romans. God's will, exactly the path that God has. Made. And yet here, it says through the Spirit. And I made this statement when I read it. It doesn't say by the Spirit. The conclusion 
right? That you should not go to Jerusalem is not a conclusion by the Spirit. It was through the means of the data that the Spirit revealed. And if you think I'm stretching that, all you got to do is look down at what Agabus said. It's the same paradigm there. Agabus says, right, I know what's going to happen. You're going to get bound like I just was illustrating for you hand and foot by the guy who owns this belt. You're going to be delivered over to the, the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, I mean, through that data, what did I do with it? I interpreted it into saying, here's my advice for you, right? Don't go to Jerusalem. Please, we urge you, do not go up to Jerusalem. Question, if Paul is, is, is by God's authoritative revelation, is learning that you are going to be, uh, you're going to be arrested, you might be beaten, whatever is included with the word affliction, and you are going to be handed over not as a free traveling missionary, but you are going to be a prisoner if you go to Jerusalem. I hope you would say exactly what Luke and Philip and his daughters and everyone at the church in Caesarea and all the Christians in Tyre after a week of spending time with Paul, they all said, don't go, don't go, don't go. I think you would say, I'd probably join that chorus too. Just like the godly Luke said the same thing. Why? Because we care about Paul. We don't want Paul to suffer. We don't want Paul to be arrested. We don't want Paul to go through affliction. We don't want that, okay? I'm going to say that stems from a kind heart. That's a kind-hearted response, okay? But you need to be ready for what Paul was encountering here by being ready for the same thing in your life. Number two, let's write it down. You need to expect kind-hearted, bad advice. That's what you need to expect because this is bad advice. God's will is to go to Jerusalem. They're saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. You know who you're going to get a lot of bad advice from? Your mother. Can I tell you that? And you know why your mother's going to give you bad advice if you have a good relationship with your mom? Because she loves you. She's your mother. She kissed your boo-boos when you were little. She, was so, she, she loved you so much. Now you're thinking you're going to be a missionary in Indonesia. You might get killed. I think maybe we can go to a better mission field. I don't know. I mean, that's an extreme example. But why does mom give bad advice? Right? Not that all of her advice is bad because she's in the auditorium today. I need to make that clear. <laughs> I guess I'm paying for lunch today after that. <laughs> because she loves me. Right? A lot of bad advice is going to come from people that love you. Mary gave Jesus bad advice. Mark chapter 3, look it up, verses 20 to the bottom of the chapter. Mary and the brothers of Jesus show up and look at him who is so busy in his ministry. Here's what the text says in Mark 3. He had no time to eat. He couldn't take his meals. Now, there's one thing mom's going to say when she thinks you're a workaholic and overworked. Yeah, honey, you need to take a break, right? Good advice is going to come from people that care about you, tender-hearted, kind-hearted advice. And, and here's how it ends. Now, there's a little pericope in the middle, a little story in the middle, but it ends with they come to a place in a house where it's packed full of people and Jesus is doing his work and Mary and the brothers are outside and they call and say, well, we want to talk to Jesus. We can't have him come outside. And here is what Jesus says. Talk about a slap in the face to your mother. He says, who are my mother and brothers? Aren't, aren't it these that do the will of God? Whoa. I mean, think about that. I mean, you've seen her on the Renaissance paintings of the, you know, she's a nice lady. And, and she just wants you to take a vacation, man. Can you take your vacation? You need a break. You're not even getting your, I, you, you need to eat, boy, right? You can see all this. And his response is, who's my mother? It's these people that do the will of God. Hey, how often did Jesus say things like that, right? Night is coming when no man can work, right? I'm going to work as long as it's day. He says, my father's always working, so I'm going to be working. Here's a guy who's a workaholic to his own hurt. And tender-hearted people are giving him advice. And that advice, Jesus says categorically, um, not talking like my mom right now. Let me give you a better example that may be more clear, but it absolutely applies to Mark 3. This one's from Matthew 16. Go to Matthew 16. If you want to see something that parallels Acts 21 and Mark 3 so well, here it is. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Mark, nope. It's one of the Bible books. You pick one. <laughs> Matthew. Is that what I said? Matthew. First book of the New Testament. 16 is what I said. Thank you. Matthew 16. You want a classic example? Here it is. Verse 21. From that time on, here's a great parallel. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. 
From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, as the head honchos, and the chief priests, those at the top religious leaders, and the scribes, those are the professorial types, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, if I hear that sentence out of the mouth of the one that I care about and love, I'm going to really pass right over that last phrase, on the third day be raised, because I don't even know what that means, because that doesn't happen. So all I'm hearing is uh, suffer many things from important people and be killed. Now, if I said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things and be killed, I hope if you like me, you'd say, uh-uh, let's go. Let's, there's a great little resort on the sea of the, the Dead Sea shores. Be, we can go get a mud bath and we can avoid all that. Let's go somewhere else. Enter Peter, who loved Jesus. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And I'm going to go, yay, Peter, you love Jesus. You don't want him to be hurt. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, that's great. What time does resort check-in start? I'm, be, I need a break. I should have listened to my mom back there earlier in my ministry. Um, you're right. I'm not up really for all that either. Get behind me, Satan. Now you think it's hard to say, are you really my mom with that advice? Can you imagine your best buddy here, the, the number one guy on your team? Hey, Get behind me, Satan. Look up the Greek word, by the way. Get behind me. That, that word is sometimes used for go die. I mean, literally, in, the, in, in like the, the academic lexicons, like go die, Satan. I mean, that's not, that's not winning friends and influencing people kind of vocabulary. That's horrible. I mean, mom's going to be hurt going, what do you mean I'm not your mother? Right? Here, you are Satan to me right now. What, by the way, do you know what the word Satan means, the word Satan means, it means adversary. You're an adversary. That's why the next word is good in this sentence when he uses this word to describe it. You are a hindrance to me. You're becoming adversarial to me. Now, why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You want a good response to Mary and Jesus's brothers? Same one. You know what you're thinking of right now? Things that would uh, really work well in the priorities of people not the priorities of God. So I think your mind is in the wrong place because the priority advice that you should be giving me is, is this glorifying to God? Are you following God on the path that he has for you? Are you doing the right thing? And all I'm telling you is, if you are in, in a valley, you're going to have kind-hearted people telling you, I've got advice for you, I'm your Christian brother, I'm your Christian sister, and this will alleviate your pain. And I get it, because when I get a headache, I go to the medicine cabinet, I see if I have any Tylenol, I see if I have any ibuprofen. I would like the pain to go away. Now, Christian advice, same way. They go, hey, you know what? This, I just don't know if you should continue in this. It's real. This is hard. And, and I, I think maybe you should rethink whether this is really good for you. I mean, there are so many in this room. Let's go from audience one, which is if you're going through the valley, to audience two, you're helping people through the valley. I just do not want you to be Satan. Would that be good? Don't be Satan. Satan gives advice to people based on what is most comfortable or easy for them. This is the things of man. They like to say things like, well, if that marriage is really as bad as you say, right? Well, then, you know, I guess, you know, I'm compassionate, loving, God is love. He wouldn't want you to go through all that. Well, I guess this covenant you made before God, let's just end that right now. I mean, I got a, I got a good family attorney that you can talk to, right? That can come from your sisters in a small group, particularly when we start putting labels on the guy. He's a narcissist, right? Or this is abuse. Now, I'm not saying there are not at least two biblical grounds for a, a legitimate amputation, right? And it's an amputation. Let's just remember what it is. But I'm just telling you how often in the name of Christianity do people try to love on each other with advice that's nothing more than the verbalization of something that really is just is magnifying the, the things of man, not the things of God. Sometimes your marriage is the valley of the shadow of death. And I'm just telling you, the advice is not, let's just figure out what would alleviate the pain. Oh, of course, I'd like to mitigate pain. I never plan for adversary, you know, or, or adversity rather in my life. But I'm just telling you, let's just think this through. We've got to think again about what the priority is. If you're giving advice, let's make sure we're giving good godly advice, not satanic advice. Peter, he's the first senior preaching pastor of the church of, it's a megachurch in Jerusalem. By Acts 2, there's thousands of people listening to Peter preach, and his pastoral advice in this passage is, no, 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 no. I'm just telling you, good people like Luke can give bad advice. We're urging him not to go. 
You became an adversary, a hindrance to the will of God. You said, I know, I know God is leading you down this path. And whatever the reasons are, a biblical reason to be on this path, and we're trying to tell you to get off. Why? Because we care about you. Be careful of people that are coming to care about you in the name of God and trying to give you an easy out. Sometimes there isn't an easy out. Let me give you a passage. I'll give you at least three examples of how the hardships might be a part of the right commitment to God. Go to 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's a pastor in Ephesus. And guess what comes with the pastorate? A lot of headaches. I can say that firsthand. Let me, uh, let me tell you. I know. In the pastorate, a lot of headaches. And it's a lot worse, I'm sure, in first century Asian city of Ephesus than it is even here in Orange County. So he's got a hard job. Now, he says in this passage, verse number 3. Look at it with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Here's his response to Timothy, who's in a job that he knows is inherently difficult. He says, take a vacation. Insulate yourself. Have your assistant take more of the calls. Don't read the critical letters. No, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Because no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, if the illustration is, my Christian life in this text is, is like a military service then to compare that with civilian life, which is, well, well after World War II, you know, let's, let's have a wash machine, let's have a refrigerator, and let's get microwaves and dishwashers, and let's make our lives convenient. That's civilian life. It's not eating the MREs on the field and, 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 and digging out uh, you know, trenches and, and foxholes. That's warfare. This is domestic life. And he said, That's it. in your role as a Christian leader, your aim is to please the one who enlisted you. And so this job has inherent difficulties. Hey, mom, your job as a mother has inherent difficulties. And there are a lot of advice you can get, even from Christian books about parenting, that will make it easier, but it's not right. I mean, let's just think about the, the screen phase. You really want me to meddle at this point? Just tell me I'm running out of time. Because, right, putting your kids in front of screens all day long, I'm just telling you, let's just think this through. There's easy ways to placate your kids, or there's the real discipleship that comes with the job of being a mom or a dad. Discipline. Some of you will not discipline your kids because it's hard. And you know what you want? You want a Christian book that will tell you how to slalom your way through the difficulties. That's so you don't have to do it. Or you can have a good godly advice, say, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. Suck it up, mom and dad, and do what you know is right. See, because the path isn't the easy path. It's the godly path. Jesus said it this way. It's the narrow path. It's the narrow path and the small gate and the way, here's how he put it, the way that is hard. That's Matthew 7, 14, the way that is hard that leads to life. And some of the roles that you have in this verse, verses three and four, it's going to include something difficult. And the advice for someone in a difficult situation sometimes is just be tougher than the situation by enduring hardship by the grace of God and the spirit of God. Keep going. You follow that? Next verse. Another example, another reason that sometimes hardships are a necessary part of the path. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, I never, well, I, did, I guess I did in junior high. I ran terrible track, but I ran for a semester. I, I, that was a painful thought just to even go back to that day. But when I was running and my side was hurting, and you know, all we had between me and cutting right across the field was a tiny little curb. Everybody's ahead of me. I'd love just to do that. That would be great. But guess what? I'd be disqualified because that's not the rules. You got to stay on the track. Duh, right? Shortcuts, cutting corners. In the Christian life, God's got a set of rules. Here's how you play the Christian life. Here are the rules. I take you in your small groups to Psalm 119 this week, and I, I make you try to digest the first eight verses just to remind you the rules are there for us from God, the moral strictures of the Bible, if you want to call them that. Fine, they are what they are. And, and, and if I keep them, I'm going to have my flesh wage war against my soul against those things. But to be a Christian, sometimes obedience is just going to be difficult. So the hardships on your path may be there because you're just trying to be an obedient Christian. I mean, maybe even just forgiving the person instead of taking revenge on the person at work. That may be the hard thing, but you're keeping the rules. So the hard path for you, whatever it is that you thought of when I said you're going through the valley of the shadow, of it, whatever that shadowy reality is, maybe it's the loneliness of being alone, but you could have compromised the rules of God by being unequally yoked or some other thing. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to do that because the rules say that I do what God asks me to do because his directives are my obligation. And therefore, sometimes I need someone to come alongside and say, suffer hardship as a good soldier, right? Keep the rules like a good athlete. 
instead of, well, you know, I guess God loves you. He only wants what's best for you, so let's just, let's just cut across to the green pastures. We'll get out of this, this valley path. Do you follow what I'm saying? So sometimes for the sake of your position, sometimes for the sake of your just obedience to Christ, and how about this, verse 6, sometimes because you are a farmer, and the farmer is described as the hardworking farmer. Now, I know he gets to the advantage of sharing in the crops, and if we were preaching this passage in its context, we'd get on to that, but let's just stop with that phrase, hardworking farmer. Now, we go to the grocery store to get our food, most of us, and, and, and we don't know some of that. But I would tell you, if you thought about farming or you know your grandpa or whatever, you know people that farm, or maybe, who knows, you came from a farming background, this is hard work. And the bigger the farm, the more hard work it is. Every Christian is not the same. This is where you employ the word stewardship. Stewardship is God giving you some kind of field, some kind of opportunity. Jesus told stories about you know passing out the mina or giving the talents the pictures of money, you get the five, one guy gets five, one guy gets three, one guy gets one. The pictures of God allotting things differently. If you're the brightest person in the room, do you follow me here? Right? You, you've got a bigger field just with that. Some of you have the most widely influential employer situation. You're a powerful person in, in South Orange County. Right? You have a broader field. Maybe you're the most gifted person spiritually in the room. You have a broader field. You have a stewardship based on what God gifts you. Some bear fruit 30, some 60, some 100-fold, but you better maximize your fruitfulness. So I'm going to say this. Sometimes the hardships are necessary just as a part of your stewardship in your field. Like, what has God given you? Well, you better develop that to its fullest. And if you have a 100-acre field, that's different than the guy that's got a half-acre field. And so, yeah, you can be in the Christian life, and the lanes are different than the barriers. We have the guardrails of, of God's Word. As it says in, in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 32, we run in the way of his commands. But within that way, there's a stewardship of different lanes. And you might have a lane that's a little more filled with potholes than that guy. Stop dreaming of the greener pastures in lane two. You're in lane seven. You got to stay in lane seven if that is your stewardship. And just know that with that, it's a lot like number one or the letter A or whatever I called it. You might have hardships because of the particular role you have. You're in a particular role, and that's true. You've got to keep the rules as a Christian. That's true. And, and it could be that just God is giving you some, some opportunities that I don't have, that she doesn't have, that he doesn't have. We've well, got to maximize that. And, and so your job may be harder. There may be more struggles. There may be more sweat involved. And I won't take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but we've, we've talked a lot about that through our last series. Paul is given this thorn in the flesh, and it was all to manage his character with all the responsibilities he had, and that was something God would not take away. So the hardships of his life included a muffler, a governor on his life, to keep him where God wanted him to be, and he said after pleading that it would go away, he said, I realize now God wants this in my life, so the valley of the shadow of death for me is a chronic illness for the rest of my life. That is my lot. That is my cross to bear. And I will say God's grace is sufficient and I'll glory in the weakness because this is the lane God called me to. I am now running off-road. My, my, my lane doesn't even feel paved anymore. And he says, that's all right. I'll stay in my lane. Verse 13, back to our text, please. I, I, I just as you're turning there, I want to remind you not to be Rehoboam. Don't, don't, don't follow the pattern of, of heretics that love to surround themselves with people that just tell them what they want to hear. Bad advice can be very addictive. You want more of it. And don't. If you know the story of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he just, we brought people around and told them what he wanted to hear. And it was, it was horrible. And, and, and the results were bad, even though they're part of God's plan of discipline on the nation. Verse 13. Thankfully, just one verse here left to, to, to tackle. Paul answered, why are you doing this? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now go back to chapter 20. You see him say the same kind of thing in chapter 20. That same picture of, of resilience. Look at verse 22 that I read initially. Going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be bad. Holy Spirit testifies in every city, imprisonment, afflictions away. But, verse 24, I do not account my life as of any value nor precious to myself. Well, guess what? A lot of your kind-hearted advisors, they, your life's precious to them, your comfort's precious to them. But he says, no, things of God, if only I may finish the course and the ministry I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's his lane because he's a public speaker. He's a missionary. He's an apostle. Well, in our passage, of course, he's saying the same thing. And that is, I'm going to stay on course. 
I'm going to follow God's plan for my life. And right now it involves a bad marriage. Right now it involves bad health. Right now it involves cancer. Right now it involves financial collapse. Right now it involves unemployment. Right now it involves whatever it involves for you. And I'm going to, in this, I'm going to continue to follow the shepherd. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tenaciously, or let's put it this way, number three, courageously stay on God's track, not just within the parameters of the guardrails. And some of you are careening into the ditch. Get out of the ditch, get back on the path. And then I'm going to say, make sure you're in the lane that God has carved out for you, your position, your role, your giftedness, your stewardship, and stay in that lane until God makes it clear it's time to move. And it better be clear based on more than your mom's advice. You you follow me? It ought to be because you know this is God's constraining of your life that it's time to get into lane eight. But until then, you stay in the lane that God has you and you follow him tenaciously, courageously, staying on track. And this reminds you that Romans 8, 28, the purpose of God, it is not accomplished by you just constantly looking for relief. The long-term benefit of the good purpose of God being played out in his big scheme of things, it's produced through the faithfulness of day-to-day saying, I'm, t- I'm just buckling down and doing this. Suffering hardship as a good soldier until God brings me into, I hope, another season of green pastures and still waters. Until then, I follow. So what is it for you? Worker, employee, employer, husband, wife, student, ministry leader? What is it to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord to be tenaciously and courageously staying in your lane? I know much of this sermon was front-loaded. I get it. But just at the end, it it speaks for itself. It's just such a good text. Why would I be having people getting me off the path? I'm not going to have them weeping and breaking my heart. I'm going to say, stop. I want the will of the Lord to be done. I'm ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem, even if that is going to cost me a ton. Following is hard. Kids do it better. That's why Jesus said it's a lot like kid following a parent. You got to become like a child in the sense that you got to trust the good shepherd. And I think of that when my kids were little, I think about they would be willing to walk into any dangerous situation because they didn't even perceive danger half the time. But as long as I had my big old fat hand down there and they had their little hand in mine, we could walk down back alleys in the worst parts of, of LA. And it was like, oh, and off they went because they trusted me. Right? And like I've said many times, your kids don't get it. They don't pile into the minivan as eight-year-olds and go, did you pay the insurance premium this month? Right? How much gas do you have in the tank? Did you check the air pressure in the tires? They don't think that way. They think you're in the seat. You got this figured out. Okay, here we go. Off we go. Did you grow up in a church where you had printed hymnals and you stood up and sang out of hymnals? Remember that? Some of you old timers. One thing you didn't want to be back in that day is the third verse of any hymn. Because you know how that was, right? One, two, and four. We didn't, worship leaders didn't know how to count, apparently. One, two, and four. The pastors wouldn't let them have enough time for their all four verses, but... One, two, and four. I came across a hymn when I was researching and studying for you this week, and I read the whole hymn a couple times, and that third verse just kept jumping out at me. I thought, well, this is the verse I never sang as a kid. It was written by an old Baptist poet and pastor and leader, went to seminary, and he wrote this hymn a long time ago, over 100 years ago. And you might remember singing it in church, he leadeth me. Remember that old English, right? He leadeth me. The third verse was so good as I just reacquainted myself with it this week because it has that picture of what we need when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't fear, right, because he's with us. His rod and staff, they comfort us. That, that we've got to have that in our minds. Listen to the third verse of this old hymn. Lord, I would clasp thine hand in mine nor ever murmur nor repine, content whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. Then the course, he leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. I just love that line when it says, nor ever murmur, nor repine. You know what the word repine means? Like, I never fret, never, never despair. I'm going to walk. Why? Because I'm going to clasp thine hand in mine, his hand in mine. I'm going to hold his hand, and I'm going to walk. I'm going to follow the shepherd. And you might be going through some really hard times right now. But you got to bear down. you got to buckle down. you got to trust that the Lord will give you strength to run with endurance the race that's set before you. And if someone's whispering in your ear, I don't care if it's your mom telling you to compromise. 
to find an easy out. Do something for yourself. Don't think of the things of God. Think of things for you. You just need to rebuff that. I don't, 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 don't be rude to your mother. But whatever your friend is saying to you, if you know it's taking you into a lane, that's not God's will, or God forbid, off the path entirely, past the guardrails, right? You know you're out of bounds. You've got to get back on the path today. And you've got to say, I'm willing to go through the hardness. Whatever the difficulty is, whatever the loneliness is, whatever the deprivation is, and say, I'm going I'm to trust until God, the good shepherd, brings me back into a level path in the green pasture. Let's pray. God, lead us, please, circumstantially, providentially, as we follow your revealed truth. I do pray for our small groups this week. If there's ever a sermon that needs to be discussed in a small group, I pray that everyone hearing my voice would get in one of our small groups and discuss these discussion questions, which will certainly have us grappling with and, and absorbing those first eight verses of Psalm 119 that remind us how important your word and your your commands are, and, and they keep us on the path. If we would just see and know that if we love you, we keep your commandments, we understand that the good shepherd has got a good path. It's the best path. You're our guide. Your, your leadership can be trusted, and I pray we would trust it even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God, embolden us, strengthen us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.